Hello and welcome to Rockets Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Linode and Squarespace and Water Cooler Trivia. I'm Simone de Rochefort, video producer at Polygon.com. And I'm joined today, as always, by Christina Warren, senior cloud developer advocate at Microsoft, and Brianna Wu, Democratic candidate for Congress, though currently at Disney World. But we have a special guest today as well, Blake J. Harris, whose book, uh, History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality, is out literally now. It just came out yesterday, if I'm not wrong. And I, I saw that I saw that bestseller tag on Amazon. I saw that. I Congratulations. Can can I give like a little bit of like a more personal introduction here? Please so do. when when I was starting game development, there were a couple of books that people told me I absolutely had to uh, read. One of them was Jacked about the start of Rockstar, uh, and one of them was Console Wars. And, you know, I read a lot of books, but Console Wars is one of these books I've read probably 10 or 15 times. It is so amazingly good. Blake wrote the definitive book about Sega versus Nintendo, and he did it not with like a a really dry, um, like, you know, encyclopedic take. He went and got to know all these people firsthand, very intimately, and turned all of his notes into a really rich narrative. And because of that, like console wars is just, it's remarkably well regarded in our industry. Uh, For years, there's been talk about what's Blake's next book going to be? What's it going to be about? And we knew it was going to be about Oculus. And then all of us in the industry are kind of watching as the Oculus launch is happening and problems <laughs> are going on. <laughs> and and I have been waiting for years to get this book, Blake, and it is more amazing than I could have dreamed. So I just, I want to thank you as a fan. And I want to tell you just on a professional note, thank you for telling our industry's stories with so much love. It means a lot to me. I mean, that introduction means a lot to me. Um, you were one of the early supporters of Console Wars, and we've become friends since then. And I'm smiling over here. I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this book definitely did not turn out how I expected. Uh, I was telling you guys before the show, it uh, ended up taking me three and a half years. It's two years longer than I had uh, planned. Uh, my wife was not too happy about that, and, but she was <laughs> wonderfully supportive and financially supportive as I spent this extra time. And and it's, it's just so, you know, there's so many fascinating things. I'm sure we'll get into it. But just with Console Wars, it was, I knew from the beginning it was like going to be a rise and fall story of Sega. But right. with the Oculus, I thought, all right, I'm at the ground floor. Of You're like, it's a thing. rise story. You're like, it's a yeah. rise and rise story. Let's talk a little bit because you, you kind of alluded to this. Like, you thought this was going to be kind of this, like, you know, ground floor, like rise and rise, maybe, you know, story of Oculus. Um, talk a little bit about the genesis for the book and how you got started writing for it. It's interesting because my first actual interview with with Palmer Lucky and Brendan Areeb and Nate Mitchell, the co-founders of Oculus, it was almost exactly three years ago to the day. It was February 18th, um, 2016, which was also a month before they launched their Rift. And the feeling at that time was very different, even then a couple months later. But my my journey into the story started about a year, year and a half before that. And, you know, thank you again so much for the praise for Council Wars. Uh, obviously, it's wonderful to hear those things. Um, but also, writing that book changed my life. Prior to that, for my entire 20s and up until the day of my 30th birthday, I was a 
commodity broker working at Rockefeller Center in New York and trading coffee and soybeans and sugar for Brazilian clients. And uh, doing that book and its success allowed me to do this full time. And, uh, and, and I remember talking to my manager right before Console Wars came out and saying it was really sad. I was never going to write a book as good as Console Wars for the rest of my life. And he said, no, no, you, you know, you'll keep getting better as a writer. And I said, yeah, I hope so. But I just thought I would never find a topic that had so many interesting larger-than-life characters, such a great business story, such a great human story. And, and in the end, you know, it remains to be seen. And uh, certainly the lack of success with Oculus, or at least not achieving what they had expected to achieve, um, will probably not have it make the same imprint as Sega and Nintendo, though we'll see. But, but I just remember feeling that way. And then I tried uh, one of Oculus's DK2 headsets at E3 in 2020. 14 and thought like a lot of people at the time, like, wow, this is the future, which is a great feeling and a magical feeling. But also from a business standpoint, I was like, well, what does this mean that people feel this way? But I sort of imagine, I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, if someone created a time machine and one where you couldn't change time, but you could visit different times, like that would be this incredible thing. What would you actually do with it, especially from a business standpoint? So I was really curious to learn the business story. And then the other thing that sort of clinched it for me was because you know, console wars was this life-changing thing. No one had ever, I'd never written anything or never had anything published before. And the only people who had read my stuff were my wife and my parents. <laughs> and so I remember, um, like you said, the, the book came out in May of 2014 and Mother's Day was around that time. And um, Popular Mechanics wrote a story about me. And I was like, wow, me? Like, that's so crazy. And they had me come in and do a photo shoot. And this was like such a big deal in the Harris family that even my dad came in to like, a, a, you know, be in the photo shoot and take photos of the photo shoot. And so like everyone in my family was super psyched and it was mother's day 2014 and we were having brunch and uh, it was the day that the popular mechanics issue was coming out. And as soon as the, the store that was going to sell it opened, I left the brunch in the middle to go get this. And it was like, wow, there's going to be this article about Blake. And I ended up not giving the, the magazine to my mom for a while because on the cover, it was a story that was way more interesting than me. And it was Palmer lucky and Oculus and, I thought oh. I really want to write this book. Um, wow. Well, yeah. that that takes me to something. Uh, I, I want to kind of make a statement about the book, and I want to ask you a question about it. Um, sure. I think if people go back through and listen to Rocket episodes talking about Palmer Lucky, I think we've been consistently um, – in support of him, I think we've given him a lot more of a break than many other outlets have done. Um, that said, even kind of being, I think, pretty generous with uh, kind of some eccentricities, maybe that would be the word. What I really felt reading the first few chapters of this book was guilt about some of my um, personal appraisals of him. Um, like, it's it's really funny because I think most people, they think of Palmer Lucky and they think about, you know, the, the issues that led to him leaving Facebook or the Hillary Clinton memes or all that kind of stuff. And you get this story of him being a teenager and being a dedicated hardware hacker where he's kind of obsessed with miniaturizing like Nintendo 64 components and is like literally the person in the world, like most directly responsible for resurrecting these old VR technologies and through passion, like reaching out to John Carmack, like getting, going to E3, making dev kits for friends. Um, This really 
humanized him in a way that really made me kind of feel guilty about some of my personal appraisals of him just because we have different political views. So I guess my question is, I mean, did you like getting to know him so well over writing the book? Like, does, does he feel happy that a wider story about him can come out now? Like how, how do you feel about that? Like, how do you feel about just this bigger story coming out? Uh, well, um, before I get into that, because I have a lot of strong thoughts on that matter. I just yeah, I want to say yeah. something that I've, uh, I, I, you know, I, Palmer knows that I am friends with you and I've never directly asked his opinion of you or anything, but, but just generally speaking, I remember that I put together a list of all the articles that came out after the, you know, inaccurate reports that he was like funding a troll campaign and doing all this stuff that, that, that I'm sure we'll talk about later. And, and, uh, I remember him, making a comment and, and this was almost right after it happened. And I just remember being surprised and thinking it was kind of a mature comment when he was so angry and so upset that, that it had been reported inaccurately and that his job was now in jeopardy. And he said, but I'm not mad at the people who think that this is true. I'm mad mm-hmm. at the reporters for, you know, cause it's not, he said, it's not these people's jobs to know whether it's true or not. They're reading these articles and they are trusting journalists. So, um, I don't. I don't think he would hold it against you too much, and I'm sure that he would appreciate, you know, your open-mindedness because there's not enough of that these days. But in terms of, yeah, I mean, just in a, in the simplest way to say it is that my book completely changed the story that I was writing, um, if for no other reason than the fact that the founder of the company and one of the main characters, probably the main character, ended up being fired or, as Facebook described it, exited. <laughs> um, and and. I remember talking to people in the weeks after that and like, like friends in the tech industry and just like, they were, they felt bad for me. They're like, Oh, your book is going to just like either it's going to come out and people are going to hate it because they hate Palmer because he's an evil Nazi, terrible person (laughs) or, or like, you know, you're just not going to sell any copies and no one's going to care about it. And, and, you know, the one, one of the things I would say is that because of what we're describing and just like the way that you, understandably assumed that a lot of what you were reading about him and his $10,000 donation was, was, was true. Like I, I really came to view journalism very differently and um, was obviously having a front row seat to that and knowing what was true and what was not and knowing how hard it was to get the truth out there and how it was just like this game of telephone where something that was initially not true just became outright false and uh, slanderous. Um, right. You know, I, I think that forced me to really think a lot more about the process of reporting and what I was doing. And I hope that, um, you know, I, I guess I think that the, the book hopefully reads as as breezily and as easily as Council Wars. But um, I definitely tried to report a little bit differently as a journalist because I felt like I had a responsibility to not do what people had done to Palmer and then sort of getting to your original question about maybe how he feels about this coming out or just what it was like for me. I felt a great responsibility, like to set the record straight with console wars. I've, I've said this a lot. Like, I, I, you know, I was really lucky that I got to be the one to tell the story, and I felt like I was grateful to be the custodian of those people's stories and to get to tell it. And that was a celebratory thing. But this was a a real dark, chaotic, weird thing. And and for me, it was super important to get the story right. And, and part of doing that entailed um, interviewing people that, let's just say, I for 
and I wouldn't normally speak with, like Milo Yiannopoulos. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Yeah. So no comment on that. But you know, I had I interviewed <laughs> him because he was part of the story or part of the perceived story. And and then I spent I spent at least ten hours. You know, for for listeners who aren't completely aware of the situation, what happened is that Palmer made a let's say $10,000 donation. It was like $9,100, but he made a $10,000 donation to an organization called Nimble America. And then this organization was five days old. They put up a billboard in Pittsburgh that said too big to jail. And it had a cartoonish and characterized picture of Hillary Clinton. Um, It was very obviously an anti-Hillary ad, but I don't, it was anything unsavory about it. Um, But that's everyone's value judgment. Anyway, this five day old organization um, and uh, was reported by the Daily Beast. The headline was uh, Facebook billionaire, meaning Palmer, uh, secretly funding Trump's meme machine. And the insinuation uh, explicitly and implicitly, and then very much said explicitly by tech influencers and other outlets, was that Palmer was almost single-handedly responsible for all the terrible stuff that you've seen online over the past six months or during the election season that, you know, all those gas chambers and misogynistic memes and all that. Palmer was the source of that. And I just remember thinking at the time, two things. Um, which I feel like were unrelated to my even knowing Palmer or potentially having insight into his political beliefs. I just remember thinking like, wow, how is this organization only five days old and somehow he's responsible for all of this? And two- Kind of epitomizes how exhausting a year 2016 was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right, and, and it's also, your point is, is important because this was like six weeks away from the election. This was like the yep. height of- It, it was super close. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the other thing was like, all right, if Palmer supposedly did this terrible thing with memes, like, let me see the memes. If, if he was responsible for stuff I find objectionable, then, then yeah, that's really, that's shitty. But there was no memes. None of these articles said memes. I remember one of them said that the memes were so terrible they couldn't even show them. And I was like, well, no, it's because they don't exist. <laughs> and you were, during, as this was happening, you were working on this book. And at, at this point in the trajectory of Oculus's story, how did you yourself see see that that what what shape was the narrative taking for you at this point? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say that the first, you know, the book is five hundred pages, but again, a very easy read five hundred pages. So don't be. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I would say that the first three hundred and fifty pages um, came out the same almost as they would have if none of this had happened, and it was pretty much the same book. Though I wanted to you know, sort of give clues. Okay, so Palmer Palmer is a Trump supporter. And so I wanted to give clues a little bit more about his politics and that he did spend, that you know, in his youth, he had been, he mentioned something from 4chan. So obviously he is at least familiar with 4chan. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't presenting him like some little angel because he's not, he's, he's a complex person. Um, but otherwise, I didn't really know where the book was going to go at that point. I rem- Somebody asked me yesterday during the Reddit AMA, um, how did I, know where to end the book because this is like an evolving story with oculus and vr and uh and i i and, I, and and how much palmer's exit like impacted that or changed it and i said that that uh you know that palmer's exit made it very easy for me because it was you know the first chapter is a kid what dreaming about starting a company mm-hmm. so poetically it makes sense that it ends with him being fired from the company i don't know how i would have ended it otherwise it well, that, probably, that brings, yeah. yeah, that brings me to, uh, and I just want to say, like, I, 
I all, my statement at the beginning was more like I think there's a very human side to him that has not been told in the story. I didn't know anything about Oculus and like Carmack meeting John Carmack and E3 being the reason like this Kickstarter was successful mm-hmm. or him right. living in a trailer and trying to decide if he's going to take a seventy thousand dollar a year job with Sony. I had no idea about any of that. So my statement was more like this. This book really humanized a figure and made me realize he was much more directly responsible for developing this than I think I'd really given him uh, credit for. So this is this is a big question, but uh, and I've not finished your book yet. I'm about halfway through it. But when it comes to the the Oculus launch not going well here on Rocket. Yeah, we've we've talked a lot about this. Like I saw the ground game, a lot of developers trying to get resources and develop uh, software for this very expensive platform. I saw a lot of that behind the scenes. Um, But when I was reading your book, it made me realize that maybe Facebook was more responsible for this not going well than I may have attributed it for originally. So my question to you is like, if you had to put down like the top reason Oculus's launch didn't go well, what would that be? That's a good question. And and I, I also want to give Facebook credit here because I don't give them credit in many other places, nor do I think that they deserve it. But, you know, the sort of the thematic um, uh, arc of the story is a familiar one that, you know, you start a company, it's a small thing and everyone's involved and it's amazing. And then you sell it and that's amazing. And then you lose ownership and big evil corporation maybe takes control or changes it. And that, to a large degree, that is how the narrative has ended for so many people at Oculus. But but part of what made um, the the founders of Oculus and the other executives interested in selling to Facebook and, and persuaded them was Facebook's pitch was essentially that they would get to remain autonomous, which they said right. they had done with Instagram and WhatsApp. They were going to treat it like Instagram, right? I mean, and and they paid two billion. They paid, you know, it was two Instagrams. It was right before the WhatsApp acquisition, as I I recall. Like it was, because I remember it was like February or 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 March of 2015. Is that when the acquisition? That's a good. It was was 2014, but yeah, actually, 2014. They did the WhatsApp. They were they were trying to do this Facebook acquisition. It fell through, but that wasn't publicly known. And then Mark bought WhatsApp in March of 2014 for 19 billion dollars, I think. And then a month later. He bought Oculus for okay. It was right after. Months. Okay, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's all it's all boring together. Yeah, I just remember I I saw the Oculus demo at CES 2014, like you did, and then Facebook bought it like right after. But it was right at the same time as the WhatsApp thing, and and I, I do remember that the promise was, oh, we'll let them run it on their own. Right. Yeah. And, and so I want to give them credit because they really, more so than I would have imagined, and more so than a lot of companies that are acquired, they really did give them that freedom. And then I would say after they messed up the launch was when Facebook stepped in a lot more. And and to answer your question of what would you attribute the botched launch to? Um, I mean, there's a, uh, a lot of reasons that you'll see in the book. And, but like the one, the one that comes to mind, and this is actually like an analogy or at least a comparison is I have recently, uh, or over the past few months since Brendan Areeb, the CEO at the time and co-founder of Oculus left Facebook, uh, I've been talking to him and talking about the book and, there, I, one of the things I had talked about was that there was still, you know, I had learned so much, so many new things, even at the time since I turned to my final manuscript. And I was really debating whether I should try to push the launch of my book to get more of that in, or whether I should just let it go out and fix that in a second edition and all that. And Brendan, who 
um, is very inspired by Steve Jobs and Apple quality products said, you know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And if it were him, he would wait. And then I remember thinking like, wow, these books are great human stories and journeys, but they're also kind of business case studies. And, mm-hmm. and I think that Brendan made a terrible decision in, in continually pushing the Oculus. So I should not do that here. Yeah. Like I think that part of it was just, um, that idea of perfection being the enemy of good or great, um, where I know that like Oculus publicly mentioned a uh, component shortage and that was due to the lenses not being a certain quality. And the, the, they, they definitely could have shipped with the lenses that they had of a lesser, lesser quality because I think most people would say they're good enough, but Oculus really held themselves to a higher standard. And, and I also imagine that this is me speculating, but it's probably a similar thing that Kent, that Brendan and the team went through that I went through with the book where it's like, the more you keep putting it off, because I took two years longer, it's like the, the even better you think it has to be to sort of justify the taking the extra time. Right. Uh, yeah. And well, so, and, and in some yeah. cases, the, the for the fans, especially since it started as Kickstarter and it, you know, it, it bought for all this money and now you have this outside attention on it that there wasn't from the gaming community, there's now this this hype that is only going to continue to increase the longer it takes for it to be released. Absolutely. And then I think just another thing that is, it's not like a reason per se, but it's just a good sort of personification for how far they came from the original vision and the original mission was a big part of that Kickstarter campaign was like, hey, we've all been thinking about VR for years, but now it's here and it's affordable. And for this for $300, you can have a dev kit. And of course, you need a high-performance PC. But either way, it was like a $300 product. That's sort of easy to get behind. And the whole point of Oculus was that it was like affordable VR, finally, at a good quality. And then what they launched was $600. Mm-hmm. And so like, <laughs> just from a marketing standpoint and a brand standpoint, it's like, all right, well, what, what are we doing here? And I, I, there's, there's a part of the book, a spoiler alert, that I, that, of an employee basically saying that, that HTC Vive, which um, was uh, – I wouldn't say it was as finished of a product as as the as Oculus um, as the Rift, but it sold better, and that was like high end pushing the boundaries room scale. And then you have PlayStation um, coming in later that year with a much cheaper product, though of course you need the PlayStation. But and that was kind of like kind of like the affordable VR, and I felt like Oculus ended up in the middle, and it was like neither feast nor foul, and and kind of lost their identity. I was just gonna ask that you might not be able to answer this but how much do you think not shipping with the touch controllers contributed to that because i i really i love the oculus rift it's my preferred uh of my my preferred of the vr headsets mostly because i love those freaking controllers and the vive is a pain in the butt to set up um but can you can you speak to the touch controllers being delayed at all yeah i mean that was the other thing too one of the things i kind of wanted and I'll wrap this back to your question, but, you know, when Brianna was clarifying her initial statement and saying that, you know, seeing this, you didn't, basically you didn't know probably that Palmer was more than just a spokesman because we mostly just saw right. him on the cover of Wired. I just, I had no idea he was a hardware geek that spent a right. bunch of time. Like there was a story that came out last week of the DevKit's uh, audio channels failing and him reading, uh, like putting out a hack he made with his own money to repair it. I read that yeah. story. I was like, that's kind of, that's cool. And then you read the book and you're like, of course he did that. Of course he would do that. <laughs> right. And, and that gets into, again, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but like, you know, Facebook started systematically lying to me about Palmer when it became convenient to make him as undesirable as possible. 
and and what they they didn't even describe him as only a spokesman. They described him as one of the spokesmen. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, wow. Like, and so, you know, and I and I preface, I say that as a preface to um one of the things that I think Palmer does deserve a lot of credit for is is the Oculus Touch. And I don't even just mean the actual finished product, which is amazing and in my opinion makes the Rift better than Vive. But you know, because there's certainly a ton of people involved. Otman Binstock architected that, and Naraf Patel, who was an early engineer, is a huge part of it. But but Palmer was always the one there who was beating the drum for for hand controllers. And like I I have one you'll see later in the book. There's this whole conversation in October of 2013. So this is five months before the acquisition, and this is around the time they're um, starting to get working on the second dev kit on DK2. And Palmer um, is is told that his sole mission in life is to make the hand controllers and he'd been prototyping them for a year. And so this is perfect. And then in what he, in, in the only time he ever like raised his voice and got mad um, at Oculus was because they canceled the controller project and they ended up starting mm. that up again about four months later. Um, mm. But you know, that's four months that if you subtract four months from December of 2016, when they launched touch, I think that maybe they could have done a little bit better. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that, that it was delayed. And also in that email thread, and there's a lot of email threads in the book, um, you know, uh, Carmack says that he doesn't think that um, unique input devices for VR, like hand controllers, are critical to V1 of, <laughs> of uh, oh, the RIF. Uh, so. Let's take a break from hearing about all of this VRT to talk about Linode. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Linode, and with Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud. And you can get that server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. Linode has hundreds of thousands of customers, and they're all looked after by their incredible 24-7 support team, no matter when you need that maintenance. They are there to provide it for you. If you ever run into any problems, you just drop them an email, give them a call, or you can chat over IRC in the Linode community if that's easiest for you. Whichever one suits you best is the method that you can choose. And they have some super useful guides and support documentation, so if you just need to look something up quickly, you can. There is nothing that I... I Like, I hate it when I go to a website and I need help and I, I don't have, like all of those options available to me. This is probably a very spoiled brat thing, but I do because like some things I know I can resolve by chatting and some things I know I actually need to have a conversation with a person to figure out. And then some things I know I can just figure out by looking at documentation and it's not a big deal. But if I don't have those options, it's over. Back to Linode. Their new management panel is now in beta at cloud.linode.com. This new management console is a single-page application built using the cutting-edge React.js stack and is backed entirely by their public API. And it's open source! Woohoo! Yeah! Plus, they feature two-factor authentication to keep you and all your data safe and secure, which, as you know, we here at Rocket are huge fans of and think is super important. Linode has pricing options to suit everyone. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for just $5 a month, and they offer high memory plans starting with 16 gigabytes of RAM. And they have a special offer for you. 
As a listener of this show, you can go to linode.com slash rocket and use the promo code rockets 2019 to get $20 towards any Linode plan. Think of that. That's one, that's 20, 20, one dollar for every decade, century. What, what, in, in two, <laughs> hold on. In 2019, 2019, it's 2000 years, a dollar for every, hmm. Well, that's not the point. On the one gigabyte <laughs> of RAM plan, that's four free months. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose. Give Linode a try today. That is linode.com slash rocket, spelled L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash rocket. And the promo code rocket2019 to learn more, sign up, and make the most of that $20 credit. Thank you so much, Linode, for your support of this show and all of Relay FM. Now let's go back to our interview with Blake J. Harris. I would, did want to ask you a little bit about your relationship with Facebook. So, um, and, and, and just one comment on, on Palmer's kind of influence. It's funny that Facebook would lie to you and, and say, you know, he was just one of the spokespeople because I remember talking to some of the, the professors and I guess he worked with when he was at USC or, or, or I guess when he wasn't even at USC, when he was just, you know, like 19 and doing stuff, right. um, who told me like forthright how involved he was and how good he was and how he was just kind of this otherworldly, you know, savant. Um, and I remember, cause I remember talking to them, I think it was before Facebook even bought Oculus. It was, I had been so impressed by the DK2 demo that I was like, this is going to be the future. What is this thing? And I was kind of trying to look into the company and looking into other things. And I was talking to these professors who were just going on and on about this kid. And I was just, I was almost in disbelief. I was like, is he really this, this whatnot? But everybody I talked to said the same thing. So it seems ridiculous that Facebook, especially after you'd spent time with him, would, would try to, um, you know, uh, change the narrative. But I did want to ask you like what your relationship with them was when you started doing the book and how it ended. Sure. And I'm very excited to get into that. One thing I was just thinking about right now is like, you know, the book came out yesterday. I've been doing interviews pretty much nonstop for the past 24 hours. And I guess in a way you could say that I'm the spokesman for the book. And so I was thinking (laughs) like, that's kind of the equivalent. Like the guy who started the company, the guy who, you know, had a hand in every single product and was, you know, a part of the discussion for every decision. I'm not going to say he's the reason certain things, everything happened, but like to call him like a spokesman, like as if he's like Jared from Subway. Minus the <laughs> like, it's just kind of crazy to me. And so, um, you know, as, as Brianna touched on earlier, you know, I think one of the things that worked so well with console wars was how close I was with the subjects and how the book went beyond just encyclopedic facts and got into their hearts and minds and their thoughts and really the camaraderie. And so that is something that I've really only written things since then that where I can get that kind of access to the the subjects. And so it took me, I think it took me 14 months from my first visit to Oculus in late 2014 to um, February of 2016, when I basically was given um, unlimited access to speak with employees. And and what I mean by that is Facebook uh, or Facebook slash Oculus would introduce me to anyone and try to help me set up an initial interview. And then, you know, my relationship between with them going forward was like between me and them, if they wanted to talk to me again, if they want to talk to me off the record, whatever. Um, so it was a very positive relationship. And I, also again, like for the most part, I think the book is um, uh, not always flattering to them, but like inspiring, like it's a positive story of this, this you know, starting a company and making a difference up until the final hundred pages. <laughs> when you really get into 
some of this political stuff and Palmer's eventual exit. And so what actually happened between me and them was for um, a year after Palmer had left, I still, I remained in contact with Palmer, but it was very obvious that he had signed some sort of NDA something because, you know, he, there was a lot of stuff he couldn't talk about with me and especially anything related to his exit. And so I knew that that was something that needed to be addressed in the book. And I explicitly told people at Facebook, like, my biggest concern is Palmer's exit because I, like, I can't just have the end of a chapter be like, and then Palmer left and let's, you know, that's it. <laughs> um, right. And I was like, I, and so sort of, I get, I guess I say that because I, I definitely made it clear to them <laughs> that when one of the main characters of the book leaves, like I need to provide an explanation, even if there's certain confidential things I can't know, like, I have to do, there has to be something there. And so shortly after that, I was told, um, details about his exit, not just from one person, but from several people. Um, and, and what turned out to not be true, but you know, about how he decided to leave on his own and <laughs> all this other stuff. And it sounded fishy to me. And it also made me think that because of my writing style, which is this narrative nonfiction style where you feel like you're in the room with these people and I'm not typically attributing where the information came from, as long as I, you know, reporting it and believe, you know, have confirmed it with sources. And so I felt like, wow, these people are telling me a story and having two or three high level people confirm it to me. So I felt like they were just trying to launder misinformation through my writing style. Ooh. And so, um, and around that time I started to get, you know, people were telling me things about that what I was being told was not true. Um, one small thing was just that, you know, Palmer wrote a statement after the bad publicity, um, which didn't come out until a day after, which was kind of weird because I know Palmer is very <laughs> reactive and aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in that statement, he mentioned that he was planning to vote for Gary Johnson, which I knew was not true because I had talked to Palmer at length about why he supported Trump as I was trying to understand how someone intelligent <laughs> would be supporting this person <laughs> that I despise. <laughs> and, and so... Um, I always kind of suspected that he hadn't written that. Um, and then someone just made an offhanded comment to me that every time that Palmer uh, writes something, like whether it's an email or just, you know, a design document, he does this thing that I hate where he uses two spaces after a period. Huh. Uh, and then I noticed in that message, it was the only time he ever used one. So I was like, hmm, that's, that's kind of fishy. Maybe he didn't write that. <laughs> and then and I was oh. having this, yeah. That was a, that was like a fun little clue. And I was like, oh my God, there's, there's, like I need to get the story. And it was also a thing that Facebook was trying to get me to publish this misinformation. And I felt like the reason they were trying to do that was because they could take advantage of my approach and because, basically because it wasn't coming back to them. And so after Mark Zuckerberg was in Washington um, being questioned about Cambridge Analytica stuff at the end of that um, investigation or time in Congress, you might recall, Senator Ted Cruz asked Mark about Palmer's firing and if it was politically motivated. And Mark said no, though, uh, notably, he wasn't under oath. But um, but so I thought, all right, now here's an opportunity. I'm going to email Facebook and I'm going to include, and I told them that, you know, there's always been this quote unquote conspiracy theory that politics had something to do with Palmer's exit. Um, but I want to clear that up. And since I've had this incredible access, it shouldn't come from me, Blake Harris, the author, because who knows, like, you know, I'm just a person and people might say, oh, I'm a liberal, like I have a mm. slanted view. So I said, it's going to come from the horse's mouth and I'm going to just include six straight up 
interview transcripts of my conversations with executives at Facebook and Oculus. And here's the first one. And it was a conversation with an executive that had what I uh, now certain was just a lot of lies. And they were pinned directly to this person. And shortly after that, my, my relationship with Facebook came to an end. Wow. That's amazing. So I, I did want to ask, uh, the Zenimax lawsuit, um, were you, were you there? Were you around for that? And, and what impact do you think that had on, I mean, I, Palmer had already been sidelined at that point, but what impact do you think that had on me cementing, um, anything, if, if any impact at all? That's a, that's a really good question. Cause you know, Facebook, um, they lost then, a lot of money. They lost right. a quarter of their investment in that ruling, not to mention all the legal costs. Like they, they lost hard in that. Completely. Um, though I will note that a lot of that was later um, reversed. But, but at the yeah. time, yes, of course, like they were being sued for basically $3 billion by ZeniMax. At the time, you're totally right. Like I think it was like February 2nd, 2017, the mm-hmm. verdict came in and, it, and Oculus and Paul, Palmer was a name defendant and they lost $500 million um, at the time. So like, I could see a case for, and that's why, you know, and that really contributed to Palmer's firing. Um, But one, you know, I I think Facebook made a really stupid mistake as they often seem to do where um, the day, like three days before that um, the case had rested or both sides had rested their case and it went to a jury. And it was that day when Palmer got a call that he needed to clear out his office. And they didn't (laughs) say he was fired at that point. But I just felt like, wow, like, why don't you guys just wait until you can at least plausibly say it was something else? Like, that was just such an obvious hell that, it, that they, they were getting rid of him anyway. Um, and, and then if you think about it, you know, sort of reverse engineer that and sort of think about it more holistically. And now, it, it start, uh, you know, I can't, this is only implied in the book, but it seems like the most logical reason that the reason that they didn't fire Palmer initially, whether it was for politics or not, though it seems pretty obviously related to politics, is because they wanted him around for the trial. And so as soon as he was uh, no longer valuable to them, they got rid of him. And that's, that was always my concern with the whole situation. Um, Cause I also knew that Palmer early on had agreed to be, to let himself be defended by Facebook. Like since he was a named defendant, he could have had his own representation and called his own witnesses, but he wanted to be a team player, which was also implied that would be a good decision for him if he wanted to keep his job. <laughs> oh, and, uh, oh, wow. So that, I mean, that, that makes that take on a completely different tone. Right. Um, this is where I should disclose that, that I worked at, at Gizmodo, which from the moment he was sidelined to the moment he was fired, we ran a, a Palmer watch series yes. daily. Yep. And uh, my, my colleague and, and, and former guest on the show, William Turton um, actually uh, <laughs> uh, did that. And uh, uh William actually interviewed him, uh, I think, right before he left Gizmodo. I don't know if the interview ever ran. Um, or Palmer, they, they went out together. And, and Palmer was, understandably, maybe a little bit not not happy with William. Um, <laughs> right. but, but, but also, at the same time, they're two young kids. Like, William was 19 at the time. And I, if there was probably, I, I have to imagine, there's probably a, a, an era of uh, game respects game. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You're going to respect, like, the, the guy who's closest to your age, who's you know, right. stalking you. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, but that, that was, in, that, but that, that is really interesting. Cause it, cause I couldn't tell, like as an outsider, it, I couldn't tell if, if they were waiting for him, you know, if they weren't wanting to use him as a scapegoat, you know, uh, right. for, for the lawsuit. And that was their way of getting rid of them because they didn't want to make it appear like it was political or something else. But that, that's really interesting that they were paying for his representation where obviously if they'd already parted ways, he would have his own attorneys and, 
Right. You know, his whole, the whole way he acted could have been very different. Right. And the way he put it to me was, it's not that he would have like testified differently, like lied on behalf of Facebook. It's just that right. he would have taken a legal approach because, you know, you, you only have a certain exactly. amount of time allotted. And they definitely, the main objective for Facebook was to make sure that they didn't lose on any grounds of, you know, technology and trade secrets, because that could be in the billions, billions and royalties. And, and as we know, like the 500 million was not based on any trade secret stuff. It was based on early Oculus stuff with Palmer. And right. who, kn- who knows if it would have turned out differently. It's interesting you mentioned uh, William because um, he did have a conversation with Palmer. And at one point, Palmer um, actually shared that email thread with me, which I thought was fascinating because uh, I've actually spoken with William. I, I generally really respect his work. But one place where he and, I di- he and I differ, and it's mentioned in that email thread, and it was something that we had a great respectful conversation about, was he believes that there's value to be being antagonistic as a journalist. And oh, yeah. I don't like that. I mean, Oh, yeah, think- it totally does. Well, I mean, right. it, 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 he absolutely does. I think part of that is, and not to defend him or speak for him, but he started working when he was still in high school. Like, we literally hired right. him at Gizmodo when he was hadn't graduated from high school and would, like, have to stop working in the middle of the day to go to English class. Um, yeah, you he, know, he's super talented. And I actually right. but what I mean is the I, conversation. It, it was oh, totally. Like, but, yeah. but I think that that puts, like, a different curve on things. Like, I can't imagine, you know, like, having that perspective. I, I think it makes you, in some ways, more antagonistic by default when you're, like, that young and you're just like, screw it. I'm just going to ask everything I want to ask, you right. know, and, and, and be as be as gonzo as, as I think I should be, you know? <laughs> For sure. And, and like, and also just to add a little more clarity to that situation, like part of what really bothered Palmer, if I, 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 if I recall correctly, I haven't thought, looked about this in a while. I, remember, I, I talked to William two days ago and said, I wanted to send a book. And he asked me if that final scene between that final conversation between him and Palmer was in there. And he had told me it was off the record. So I told him no, because I'm actually a journalist who abides by that. Unlike some others that Brianna knows, but um, <laughs> anyway, the, the thing that Palmer, that actually, pissed Palmer off was that Gizmodo and actually not William. I think it, it was, was Brian. Brian. Yeah. <laughs> I love Brian. Yes. Go on. He wrote about, he wrote something about his girlfriend and Palmer yeah. just felt like that was inappropriate to bring her into it. Like, you know, say whatever you want about me. And again, I think that's more of just an interesting philosophical journalist. I mean, question. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. I would also say don't tweet stuff. If you know what I mean? Sure. Like if it's on Twitter, it's on Twitter. It's not like he went into like right. private records, but, but, Fair enough. I, I I do understand that that I can't. I did always think that was funny that like, uh, and he's not. William is not the only one who sometimes got blamed for uh, for Brian's stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I, I mentioned that because it. like, but I love Brian. One, yeah. One yeah. thing we at least know about Palmer um, that is pretty factually obvious, whether you like him, dislike him, agree with him, whatever, is he is pretty active and reactive and aggressive on social media and just in general. So, like. I know that one of the things that pained him the most during that whole, uh, you know, the, the, the bad press coming out and what, and, and it's spreading and becoming this narrative that he was like a racist Nazi troll supervillain person was that he could not defend his girlfriend. Right. Uh, and, and the reason he couldn't and gets into some of the more interesting stuff of the book was because in the aftermath of that, ha- you know, that story broke the daily beast story that claimed that Palmer mm-hmm. was doing this meme machine thing with broke on Thursday night. Palmer originally wrote a statement that, um, you know, explained what was true and what was not. And most of it, at least in his opinion, was not true and talked about his politics. But he was not allowed to run that statement. He was not allowed to express any support for Trump. Then he tried to say that, well, he's he's not supporting Hillary, hoping that by process of elimination, it would make clear who he was supporting. 
Uh, he was not allowed to run that. And um, he was not allowed to respond to anyone on social media. He wasn't allowed to talk to employees. And then eventually a statement was drafted by Mark Zuckerberg that he ended up posting the one with only right, one. Right. The, 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 yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the Gary Johnson post. Yeah. And the Gary Johnson thing. And so the point I was just making was regardless of whether it's ethical or in the public interest or just a good technique to report about someone in an antastic manner or about their girlfriend, I, the, it just, Palmer couldn't respond. And that was the part that always stuck out to me and always seemed very weird because he, his instinct would be to respond. And, uh, you know, he ended up being not allowed to communicate um, on social media or to communicate with employees for pretty much the entire six months from when that happened to when he was fired, except for one day they brought him back into the office, which was only because they were doing legal stuff <laughs> nearby and they couldn't coordinate elsewhere. Otherwise, they wouldn't have brought him. And this gets back to Facebook lying was during that day, he was finally allowed to write a letter to his colleagues. And he still really wasn't allowed to talk about much what happened. But at the end of it, he said um, that, you know, he still loved Oculus and planned to be there for the next 50 years. And so then when Facebook, their, the, the lie that they settled upon was that he chose to leave. I just thought that was a really poor choice for a lie. Yeah. Yeah. I know that is not true at all. I think everybody yeah. knew from the outside. Yeah. And that's a really good point about him not being able to comment. I mean, I think we all kind of felt like that was probably what the case was, you know, because right. he didn't say anything. And and it, <laughs> that was completely contrary to all the other public things and figuring, oh, well, yeah, I'm sure this is the lawyers have said, if you talk, you know, something bad exactly. will happen. Exactly. <laughs> all right. I find it so impressive that you with coming into this situation, I feel like this must have been a trial by fire for you after something like console wars where it was already, you know, in the past and it's, it's interesting, rich history. And then this is like, without journalistic training, like, boom, here you go. Enjoy the most dramatic, like (laughs) intense (laughs) book writing process. That's like basically the story of my life for the past few years. And I really appreciate you making that observation because I certainly, it's a small distinction perhaps because I do consider myself both of these things. But with console wars, I definitely consider myself more of a storyteller. And obviously it was factual information I was telling. But in this case, I definitely felt like more of a journalist and it was trial by fire. I felt like I was out of my element. I also did not really know who I could trust because certainly, you know, sources at Facebook I couldn't trust. I also, Facebook is like a publicly traded company. Mark forcing him to post a Gary Johnson statement is illegal. Like there's a lot of stuff at play here. Um, but, and, and that's really a big part of the reason that it took me two extra years to finish. Cause I wanted to make sure that I was following the proper protocols and that if I was publishing these things that I would be legally, so you're not going to be sued. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or that at least you have a viable defense if, if they do try to do something. Right. Have you heard anything from Facebook since you published the book? Um, I heard, so a few weeks ago, um, I, I guess in early January, I, I, I also tried to intentionally lay as low as possible with the book because I did not want Facebook to get a copy. I didn't want, I kind of wanted them to forget as much as possible. Um, and then sort of in January, I reemerged and tweeted some things about the book and people at Oculus um, who had either like forgotten the book or there's so many new employees there like they didn't know. They're like, oh, this is so cool. There's a book coming out about our company. And, um, You're like, well, about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, and then I know that um, a manager there someone who I would say had been dishonest with me in the past, um, sort of oh. threw some water on that, dampens that enthusiasm and 
said that, you know, we worked with Blake early on, but he, you know, we couldn't trust him. He broke our trust and that, uh, the books, we haven't seen a copy of the book yet, but it, it, it sensational, but we be, we've heard that it sensationalizes and dramatizes a lot of things. And, you know, there's so much not true in that statement. And again, like they had, they had already had a copy at that point, but I guess it's part of the course for them to not be forthright with their employees. But anyway, the, I just wanted to make the point that the reason I knew about that statement is because so many people on Facebook and Oculus leaked it to me. And the reason they did <laughs> is because they, they ended up trusting me more than they trust their own employer. Wow. And like in the end, Facebook's strategy of lying to me backfired big time because I brought that to people who were close to Palmer and had a lot to risk by helping me when they were told not to. But they're but if the, they were basically deciding between this being printed, even though I never would have actually let that happen. But like you know, basically, yeah. I think I, this like, has I, to convince people to read the book because this is all so flippant, juicy, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Thank Blake, you. this is so good. We're so excited. This episode of Rocket is also brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you want to create a portfolio. Maybe you want to create a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about those things those useless things. Squarespace has it all covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support to help you on your journey to create a fulfillment, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your fantastic ideas. I cannot wait to design my next Squarespace site. I was just creeping on uh, other podcast websites. Uh, you Must Remember This uses um, Squarespace, I believe, for their website. And it is so perfect for that because uh, Karina Longworth has all these beautiful photos of like Hollywood <gasps> yes. celebrities. And they're I'm just, looking at this now. Yeah. Wow. It, it looks great. You can just, they're it looks right really there good. front and center and it makes it look very, you know, uh, um, glamorous. And Judy and, and, uh, and Liz all of them. God bless. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash rocket. When you decide to sign up, use that offer code rocket to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain and show your support for rocket. Once again, that is squarespace.com slash rocket and the offer code rocket to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you so much, Squarespace, for your support. Make your next move. I'll make your next website. The book, again, is The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. It is out now from HarperCollins. It came out yesterday. And, well, okay, this is Wednesday. It came out on the 19th of February. <laughs> and this is Blake J. Harris, as we said. I think we're going to transition now into our secret <laughs> segment that Brianna has promised and Blake is going (laughs) to stick with us for this and then we're going to have one final final just wrap-up session let him go home and sleep because he has just come from a book signing to be on this show (laughs) I just want to say there's there's a lot of stuff in there but the 
the journalistic choices that uh, led to Palmer exiting Facebook. Yeah, I hope our our listeners will go out and read that chapter because there's a lot of stuff there. And I think there are people that need to answer for some of the things in that chapter. But that's where I'm going to leave it. Blake, I have a secret segment for you today. We're going to have a game show. We're going to have a game show today. And this is the game show. I want to see if Blake Harris can answer trivia questions about his own book, Console Wars, better <laughs> than Christina can. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, it's going to be so embarrassing because I have forgotten so much of that book. We're I mean, all about Christina, to be really embarrassed. Christina is a human computer. She is going to murder people on Jeopardy one day. So, okay, so that is a great idea. I would also (laughs) like to say in advance that, you know, when people say, when they're talking to people who often forget things, they say, you need to write it down. And Brianna, that's why I wrote the book. So that's why I wrote the book. But but let's go. Bring it on. This is a great Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Blake, (laughs) it's your book. Do you want to go first or second? Because I have all these questions in order. So I don't really think there's like any bias with which one I picked what. So do you want to go first or do you want to go second? I, I was taught, I was raised to be chivalrous, so I will let the lady go first. Okay. All right. Christina, Sonic the Hedgehog, the creator of Sonic the Hedgehog revealed that his design after the, the contest to basically create Sonic the Hedgehog, they had a contest at Sega to create him. His design came from two characters. What were those two characters? They put the head of something on the body <laughs> of another thing. It was like Roadrunner and like Mickey Mouse? I don't know. Yes, that silence is golden. Can I steal, Brianna? <laughs> yes, you no, you can't. You can't. You can't. <laughs> All right. Okay, okay. We're going to give Christina partial credit for that. It was okay. Felix the Cat and it was Mickey Mouse. So Christina gets one half a point. Okay. She, I think she should get like 0.6. She should get an extra point one because I think Roadrunner was just a creative answer. I like that. Yeah, that was, that was really good. That was really good. Okay, Blake, when uh, Kalinske, Tom Kalinske came forward and uh, unveiled uh, Sonic 2, he was promoting it. He promoted this game at the mall with a member of the Saved by the Bell cast. What, what, which Saved by the Bell cast member was that? Uh, I would get. I would answer Justin Diamond. That's mm. correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Point for yep. Blake Harris. Nice. Right there. Yep. I'm very mad. I didn't get that one. I would have known that one. <laughs> I, w- I was at a Save with the Bell pop up restaurant in Los Angeles last week. So yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Christina. Yes. So we all know about like Mode Seven versus Genesis's blast processing, right? But the technical name within uh, the Genesis. For blast processing, what was that name? It's not blast processing. It's something else. I don't know. Um, Bree, you're being cruel. Th- yeah, this these is, are I, hard I, questions. Yes, <laughs> this, 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 this this is really hard. Um, Roadrunner. Yeah, I, 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 I point six for again. Great answer. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have, I have no idea. I mean, this, this, this was, this was in, this was in the Genesis. This wasn't even part of the. Um, uh, the marketing, no. No, I'm no, but I'm saying it wasn't even part of 32X or whatever. I, I, I genuinely have no idea. I do not remember. All right, Blake, do you remember? 
No, I'm so glad that she got that question. <laughs> the answer is burst mode. So yeah. burst, okay. mode. burst mode. Okay. I don't think you're going to get this one, Blake. This is a very hard one. Okay. Between 1987 and 1992, Capcom worked with Disney to release four different video games. Can you name three of them? Hmm. Uh, I two. So this is before Lion King and all that stuff. Um, I would say other ones. Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers. Is that one? Uh, nope, nope. That was a Capcom one. That is not. I think that must have been released after 1992, or that's not mentioned in this particular segment of the <laughs> question in the book. So, you know, I may have a faulty question here. I'm going to no, 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 no. I don't think that. it's faulty. I'm going to give about, you credit. Uh, yeah. Can, can, can I can I just the, say that yeah. the two publishers of one of the one of the titles? Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, there were yeah, different because yeah. there were two different there were two different publishers for for one of the big games. One of them was for Super Nintendo, and one of them was for Sega Genesis. Mm-hmm. Right, that was for the Aladdin game. Yes, it was. That was nineteen ninety three. So, right, that that had to be that was ninety two. I thought. Oh, that was ninety three. Okay, for some reason I thought that was ninety two because the movie came out in ninety two. Oh yeah, you're right. It was ninety three. Okay. No, I I don't know. And no, no, you're right. That's 93. That's 93. No, what are the uh, four games that they did? Okay, oh, the I ones have... your book mentions, at least. Uh, so we're going to pass on that one. Uh, Mickey's Mascapade, which is a great game. I played I way too much game. of that. Yeah. DuckTales, mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit, and Little Mermaid. Uh, That's disappointing. Well, and, that is it, guessable, too. Yeah, a lot Little of those Mermaid, games are fun. Little Mermaid was just Game Boy, wasn't it? That wasn't even on the other. Uh, I have no idea. I think that that was only a Game Boy game. Anyway, um, yeah. Okay. Okay, Christina, Doug Glenn worked with TCI and Time Warner Cable to implement a revolutionary on-demand video game service. Oh, X-Con. What was the name? What was the name oh, of no, that the service? Sega, the Sega Channel? That's it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which, was, right. featured, which was featured in, in the film Mallrats, of course, with, uh, with, <laughs> with the... With, with the um, uh, the hockey game, um, uh, and uh, you know NHL ninety two or ninety three or whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Is there. someone keeping score? What's the score? Here? I'm absolutely not keeping it's a, score. It's Y'all are big nerds. One point six to one. Okay, yeah. this is very tight. Very very close. Okay, we got four questions left. What are when Sega first came forward and proposed video game ratings? They proposed a three tier system, like. What were those three tiers? Hmm. I, I can't believe I'm going to lose this contest. That's going to be so embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I uh, Since it ended up being so much like the other one, I guess I would say E for everyone, M and 17 plus. <laughs> uh, you had GA for general audiences, MA13, mm-hmm. and MA17 for adults only. Damn. I think he should oh, get point six points for that. I think he should get like <laughs> at least half points for that because he's basically there. Because he's right, it was basically the same as the, as the ESRB. With, okay. So you know, Thank you. Thank I, you. I can go. I can go with that. All right. This is this is a much easier one, but you're gonna have to name the games. So, okay. Oh boy. Okay. So when uh, you know the the period of Sega's like kind of downfall. Right. Like mm-hmm. when they were moving, they're putting out all these ridiculous extra things like 32 32 X and right, yeah. Right. The Saturn so, RIP. Right. So <laughs> they're kind of in this this weird stage. Right. Sonic three comes out, but the entire game isn't finished and they decide to split it into two parts. 
uh, I'll give you half a point for naming the technology that they used to ship the second part of Sonic 3. And I will give you another half of a point to know the game that was added onto Sonic 3. Okay, so it was it was Sonic and Knuckles. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was the third one, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um that was the combined game that you made, right? Like it was it's like you yep. had like Sonic 3 and then and then you would you would have it with the second game for Yep, you make just Sonic plug it on top of each other. What was the um, technology of joining those two together? I don't know. I don't know. I just remember <laughs> that it be that it made Sonic and Knuckles. I have no idea. It's a hard one. That's lock on technology. Lock on. Okay. Lock on. I actually right. remember that one. So that was oh, good. And I give a little shout out to Paul Rio, the CFO, because he was the guy Absolutely. who had remembered that. Yeah. All right. So uh, in May of 1993, Blake, Sony paid $48 million to acquire a company that specialized in 3D uh, rendering for games uh, that competed with uh, basically FMV games. Like they would, they would render the oh, yeah, assets okay. on that. What was the name of that company? It's uh, one that made Sewer Shark. And actually, I, I don't remember. That is a really good question, though. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, do you know? No, no. I mean, the only one I can remember, I think, I mean, it, it was Sony. It wasn't, um, no, I don't. It's Psygnosis. Diagnosis. Okay, but but, right. but but yeah, but you're right because they 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 also they made like 3DO and like Sega CD games. I think right. Correct. That is okay. absolutely correct. Okay, uh, Blake, can you tell me the names of the two brothers that started Rare, and for half a point, and for the other half a point, can you tell me the name of their first game that they shipped? No, I really can't. And then so I, the. The, the Stamper Brothers? Yeah, Chris and right. Tim. Yeah, Chris and Tim. That's um, it, that's it. That one should have been very obvious. No, but what was, <laughs> and what was the first game that they did? Uh, it's Jetpack. How about this? What is the system that they specialized in working with, uh, Rare? What was the system that Rare was such an expert in that literally launched the entire company? Wasn't the Silicon Graphics, the SGI? Mm-mm. No? That would have been my guess. <laughs> Honestly, I, I would have figured it was SGI. Um. Okay, well, that was uh, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Okay. Oh, okay, oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just, I guess, I was thinking about like whatever they were using when they were making the Super Nintendo games, um, which was, I, I, I'm pretty sure, it was the SGI. But Blake would know better right. than me, obviously. All right, all right. We have one more bonus question. We'll just throw this out to whoever can get this. Sega had a very famous commercial featuring a dog in black and white. Can either Uh, of you remember the lines of that very famous commercial or the punchline of that commercial? It started with, if you're colorblind, you have IQ of less than 12, you wouldn't care which portable you had. Right. You, like, right. you wouldn't yeah. care if it's only 16 colors or something, right? Right. And then yeah. what was the punchline? Do you know it, Christina? No, I don't. I, I don't know the exact wording, but I believe it was something like, but then you'd also be drinking out of the toilet. 
Oh, right. yes, that's right. that's right. That's right. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yes, God. Awesome. God, great job. Great job. Um, yeah. I, I, I wasn't counting. So is this a tie? Was I this, think this was uh, definitely a tie, but the tie okay. goes to Christina because I should definitely know all these things. This <laughs> oh, <laughs> she's the winner. No, no, no. That was, that was hard. Like that was hard. And it's been a while since I've read the book, but no, that's good. Now I want to go back and just like watch a YouTube, like reel of all the old Sega ads. Um, like, like the one with the, with the one with like the, 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 the fat kid with the booger hanging out of his nose. Ew. Nintendo like player. They used to play those on PBS during Ghost Rider, which always uh, struck me as like edgy on yeah, like remember, it struck me as like edgy that like a PBS would take money from Sega and <laughs> air like those ads. Anyway, oh I think gosh. also I should automatically lose for not remembering the Stamper Brothers because that's like at least anyone should know that, and that's just a real great part <laughs> situation. So I I I can see no no no, no 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 no. I also think I, it's funny because I I I said even earlier today at the at the book signing that you know when I see Council Wars I. My my first instinct is always like when I see it in a bookstore, like, oh, I want to read that book. It looks good. And I remember that I wrote it. And now I actually should probably just read it as a reader. You should. It's a great freaking book. Is, is, <laughs> Thank is, you. Is, is, is it still getting made into is it still getting adapted? Is that still happening? Yeah, I was I was gonna say, so it is being made now into a television series instead of a movie, which I think Woo! is pretty much better. Heck yeah. Uh, and uh we have an awesome writer, Mike Rosolio, an awesome director, Jordan Jordan Voigt Roberts, who just did Kong Skull Island and yeah. And for the first time in my entire film career, including the 10 years when I was a failed screenwriter while trading commodities, stuff's actually moving. Like things are happening fast. So that's good. And then also me and my uh, longtime collaborator, Jonah Tulis, who have been working on the documentary in partnership with those guys. Um, that's also moving along. And I was going to say that instead of watching those commercials, I should send you some clips because you will probably Please enjoy that. Do. Are you kidding me? I would like <laughs> I would die. It's like my favorite. I've seen some of these clips. It's really good stuff. Well, thank you so much, Blake, for joining us and staying out late. I, you are literally about to get kicked out of yes. the Strand <laughs> Bookstore, <laughs> if I'm not wrong. He's at the best bookstore in New York City. It he is. is. It, like, it really is. This is where I bought so many of the formative books in my life that it was, this was like one of those moments and I signed it in the, um, the book to the events corner. Like, this was like, wow, I, I've made it moments. Like, I can't believe I'm <laughs> doing an event at Strand. Tell us where people can find you online and uh, where your next signing is going to be, if there is going to be one. Um, so I'm going to the Bay Area and, in to, and to L.A. next week, and I'll post the um, times and dates and locations of that. But you can find me on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC. And as, as Brianna knows, and once compliments would be on, I, I pretty much respond to everything, good or bad. I, you know, I, I meant what I said earlier that whether it's the Oculus story or Sega Nintendo story, I, I think it's like a, I think that when you become the custodian of other people's stories, you have a responsibility um, to take care of those stories. And so I always try to answer anything. Um, and, and I just wanted to thank you guys, not only for having me on, but also just for being very open-minded. There was a large period of time where I was working on this book and because Palmer Lucky was perceived as such a terrible person, I, literally thought this was going to ruin my career and still persisted because I thought it was important. And I, 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 you know, it's still early. It remains to be seen, but like at least people have been reading with an open mind and that's all that I would ask. So I really appreciate you guys having me on and, you know, talking about non-political related stuff related to him and the book. Well, I, 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 I've said this before. I hope people read this. It is definitely a more, a far more 
complicated picture than the press put out there. I also want to say, I feel like I'm in a unique position to say just how much political speech $10,000 will give you. (laughs) I think, I feel, I feel like people might be overestimating the effects of that on the 2016 election. So anyway, thank you for coming on. You've been a good friend to us. Oh, and also, that, that was a great game. Obviously, it embarrassed me, but that was hilarious. <laughs> and it's just another reason why I love you. So I'm very glad that we've been friends these past few years, and, uh, and I'm super psyched to hear what you think about the rest of the book. Yeah, we're going to finish up on this trip. I'm going to try to spend some time with my husband, too, but I'll finish <laughs> yeah. the book. So there it is. All right. Thank you so much, Blake. What a juicy conversation and a juicy trivia game. Well, folks, I've got news for you. (laughs) This is so good. Our third sponsor today, this episode of Rocket, is brought to you by Water Cooler Trivia. The folk at Water Cooler Trivia are here to spruce up life at the office. They send weekly quizzes by email to you and your colleagues to spark some good-spirited competition which we've already had on this show. Um, so, Brie, your questions were really hard. And I'm going to show you what it looks like when you... And that wasn't your fault. Like, obviously, you had some very technical questions for two very technical people. But this is... A, I'm, I'm gauging the uh, the difficulty level of the people that I'm talking to. And I'm choosing my questions based on that. Water Cooler Trivia lets you set set things up super quickly so that you can learn your coworker's secret knowledge and start showing off your own. What you do is you create a group, you choose quiz categories and difficulty level, like I mentioned, and then you get a custom link to share with your colleagues so that they can sign up. Anyone who does sign up will have a quiz land in their inbox every Monday, and then you'll all get the weekly results so that you can fight each other. They're brightening Mondays for companies all over the world, from international consulting firms to tiny tech startups and national retailers. You can create a group for your team today with a free trial and no credit card required if you, too, want to challenge your friends or coworkers to trivia. So, I'm going to ask you a question now, gauge to your difficulty level. What burger chain has a menu item called the Baconator. Wendy's. Wendy's. They got it. James, buy me a Coke. Gah. <laughs> oh, I'm so proud of you both. You can we, head- we, we, we love Dave Thomas, RIP. Like, honestly, Wendy's commercials will never be as good now that, like, he's been gone for, like, forever, and I still miss the Dave Thomas Wendy's ads. I knew that would be like maybe too easy for you because you love fast food so much. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have gotten it. I had it. Taco Bell for breakfast. God bless you. Okay. Head to watercoolertrivia.com slash rocket for a two-month free trial that is eight weeks of totally free office fun. Go to watercoolertrivia.com slash rocket right now. Now. No. Thank you so much, Water Cooler Trivia, for your support of Rocket and all of Relay FM. All right, folks, let's talk about what we're doing this week. Brianna, please tell us what you're doing. I, I'm not folding my phone this week. That's something I'm not doing. Uh, I'm also... <laughs> <laughs> Dad! Dad! 
I'm here at Disney this week. I'm enjoying a break before I go back and uh, spend the next f- month with the new person we're hiring on to our team to be our financial uh, person. So enjoying some time with my husband uh, before going back to 80-hour-a-week hell. It's going to oh, be great. Man. Um, yep, that's what I'm up to this week. How about you? Uh, me, I am finishing up my video on pinball history, which I'm super excited about. Wow, that's awesome. I know. It's been so flipping fun to do and like really put in like the effort to make it super, super beautiful. Um, and then I'll be getting back to work on my video about the year 2009. <laughs> is is Xenon is- included in your pinball games in your pinball thing? It's more about pinball's reputation and how it kind of tarnished video games reputation. Oh, ah, so, interesting. Yeah, less about see, 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 Blake, Blake's next book, now that he's conquered both like the peak console period, because I think we can all agree that like the 16-bit console wars were like was like the the definitive time of gaming and yep. and VR. Like he should go back and like talk about the the, like the first thing, <laughs> pinball. I'm not even joking. The Genesis. Blake, do a pinball book. I yeah, I didn't want to ask him like, hey, what's your next thing? Since he literally worked for three years on this and it just came out. But totally, I am but, but, so excited to find out what his next thing eventually is. I think it should be pinball. I think it should be pinball. Um, no, that that sounds awesome. I can't wait to, to see your video. Heck yeah. All right. Uh, what oh, oh, are you doing, I Christina? Am, uh, I'm, so I'm not traveling, which is amazing. Um, and that's really <laughs> all I have to say. So I, I don't travel until the 5th or 6th of um, March. I'm going to do like a two-day trip. And then uh, I'll be in Boulder one day and I'll be in Vegas the next day. And then we'll be back home. And then, um, I, but I don't, I don't have a, a long trip until the 17th. So... I'm just really happy not traveling. And, uh, but I, I do miss Australia because Australia, you guys, if you haven't been, um, everybody who listens to this podcast, if you live there, congratulations. You live in the best place on, on, on the planet. And um, I want to go back. I haven't been every place on the planet, but, but like it's, it's my new favorite place. So I, I'm missing Australia, but oh. also happy not working. Oh, also, also, I missed this. Uh, I was almost sucked into a riptide. Uh, and, uh, Whoa. It was, yeah, yeah. Saved by the the tide. yeah so i just got the, the tide was stronger than i thought it might have been and i thought that i was like swimming backwards and swimming back and i got out further than i should have and my colleague jason hand helped to get me but then really it took the the uh the bondi uh lifeguards on their little powerboat thingies to come out and and pull me up and and take me to safety i'm fine i'm really I'm fine. glad that you're okay Christina, you've got to start getting into near-death experiences. First, a car nearly crushes you, and now riptide in the ocean. Like this is like that movie, Final Destination. (laughs) I know, I know, but you know, but like it's a great story. I'm fine. It's good. I got saved by hot lifeguards. It's okay. It's all right. No, I, uh, I do. Do be careful if you're out there. I just got further out than I should have. That's literally my worst nightmare. Um, but I'm really glad you're okay. You're back. I'm glad you had a good time in Australia. Also, I'm just going to say, and shout out to like the great lifeguards at Bondi, but like, this is why you should go to a really beautiful, but really busy beach because they have people like on it. 
I am about to forward you guys our first water cooler trivia quiz. But more importantly, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rocket. If you enjoyed it, please do review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are reviewed and consider sharing it with your friends so that they can take a listen too. And thank you again so much to Blake for showing up and spilling the tea about oculus i really enjoyed that um i i'm super super interested in all of the knowledge that lives in your brain all right feeling good feeling Feeling great great. this episode of rocket is terminated 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 terminated